This is Christian Williams, editor of Utney Reader, and you are listening to episode three of the Abstract Notions podcast. My guest today is Zoe Helena, who is an environmental activist, wildlife advocate, artist, writer, uh, and she's also at the forefront of the psychedelic renaissance. Her and her husband, medicine hunter Chris Killam, have done extensive research into the medicinal and spiritual qualities of plants, and specifically the ayahuasca ceremony in the Peruvian Amazon. Uh, Zoe runs a company called Cosmic Sister that helps women um, realize the benefits of, of psychedelics, um, specifically through a grant that she has started called the Cosmic Sister Plant Spirit Grant um, that actually offers financial support for women to be able to go down to the Amazon and experience uh, the healing benefits of an ayahuasca ceremony. So over the course of our conversation, we, we of course talked about Cosmic Sister, um, how she came up with the idea, uh, how it's helped women, how it's helped her. Um, but also uh, an interesting part of our conversation is her, is her perspective on the female role in the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, I think she'll, you'll find that she has some really interesting insight that you don't hear in other places about psychedelics. So I won't waste any more time. Uh, let's just get into the conversation with Zoe Helena. So the first question I want to ask you about is just kind of a brief um, summary of your background before getting into ayahuasca and all these other things. Like what, what kind of skill set did you bring and, and professional experience have, can you bring to uh, what you're working on right now? Oh, it's an interesting question because I, I married Chris eight years ago and prior to that had zero psychedelic experience and pretty much nothing in plant medicine either. So my skills were, we, we do have a lot in common actually. We have more of a communications, creative, professional background and a lot in common again and yet somehow different. I was brought up in an unusual environment. I was born into a family of professional artists and my father was a, a science teacher and a founding faculty of the School of the Arts in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which was in that, at that time a really special environment. It was a counterculture movement. It was a really fantastic school that was, uh, was merit-based, and kids were coming from all over the world, and master teachers in the performing arts were coming from all over the world. So a very special environment and time. So I had this... Um, Really, I mean, outstanding. I, I was very lucky to have the first 10 years of my life in that environment. And I, I bring that out because I, I learned, first of all, in that era, children were viewed as something adult, like they weren't, not as adults, but they were important. They were as, as important as adults, and, and that seems kind of strange to us today. But back then, that was a big movement, mm -hmm. because prior to that, children were sort of to be seen and not heard. Whereas when I was growing up in that environment, I was treated as, a, an, as an important person, and I was, you know, they recognized my artistic talent, and they were very supportive of me, so I would have these, you know, sometimes famous artists picking up my pieces of art and saying, this child has a gift. So I learned really early on that I had that, and I followed that through. I found my own niche in the theater, because for me, it was the art that brought all of the arts together. And I was very, very passionate about that for most of my life. I went and studied more than I would like to admit. I have way too much training in that. And I did professionally uh, work in the theater up until about age 30. 
And at that point in my life, and I mean, I was very successful. I really enjoyed it. I got all kinds of awards and credits, and it was really fun. And I never thought I would leave it. But I reached a point where I felt on the one, there were several things that, that I wanted to move away from that world for. One was I felt like I needed to live my life. And while I was living my life as an artist and a theatrical, it was still in this enclosed world where I was studying other people and human condition. And it was exciting. It was history all over the world. And this, this comes back into play because it's about anthropology or ethnobotany. We studied human condition. So it was about bringing to life a script that might be anywhere in the world at any time and really understanding that script and understanding that world and then bringing it to life for the audience really well. So there was a lot of research, and, and, but there was art to it, you know. It was really looking at what, what makes us human in this respect, you know, what in this world is a human nature thing. And it's all human. There's no animals in it. You're always playing a human. I mean, okay, mm-hmm. there's cats, but they're human cats, right? <laughs> yeah. So if that makes any sense, I'm trying. To, I'm always trying to explain the connection for Chris, and he doesn't seem to see it as as much as I do. But for me, I mean, you couldn't get an art that was more anthropological than the theater. Hmm. So it it gave me a a perfect ground base, or you know, really under. I mean, I have a very strong understanding of that medium. It's not. Oh, it's a. It's pretty deep. Yeah. And my teacher, incidentally, I ended up in design in grad school. I went from acting to design at that point in my life, and my teacher was one of the finest in that field. Her name was Patricia Ziprod, and she was still you know, working on Broadway at that point in her life, and she came up to Brandeis University to teach once every two weeks to do a master class for three days. So for three years she did this, and I had this incredible mentorship with this woman. And she was known, she was Bob Fosse's partner for 20 years. She was known for working with the finest directors. She was known for being this woman who could bring to life the clothes, which she called them. She didn't call them costumes. She called them clothes because they were what the characters wore. Hmm. And so she was all about the psychology of the piece, you know, the, the bringing, again, bringing to life what is the human element here and how can I express this artistically. And she was sent all over the world to do her research. So in a sense, what's interesting is here, here I am married to the medicine hunter, right? And <laughs> we eloped, so I wasn't exactly prepared for it. <laughs> and we're going around the world doing pretty much what she did, only he does it with medicinal plants. Yeah. So... I had this odd connection where I felt, in the, on the one hand, completely new, and on the other hand, there was a big familiarity there. And so now we flash forward to the, you know, the opportunity when you, you have a chance to dive headfirst in this with ayahuasca. Um, you, know, you mentioned that you didn't have any prior psychedelic experience. What was <laughs> the, you know, I guess going into that, into the Iowa, your first ayahuasca experience, what was running through your mind, and, and, and how are you trying to process what was going on? Well, we were invited to this wonderful event. There was one of those events everybody wishes they were at. It was the first convergence in the Amazon, and it was put together by a woman named Sita who works in Los Angeles, and she was actually there at Nahui Rao when um, this, this last journey we went with the, with Laura who wrote the story she was there as well but she had brought together 75 different people and many of them were some of the leading voices in the field and i really as i said i was totally new to this 
and I'd been married for one year. We celebrated our first anniversary down there. So it was seven years ago, almost exactly. And I went down fully prepared and intending not to drink. Hmm. I'd been brought up by a fabulous father who was a bit, you know, bought bought the propaganda against any psychedelics. You know, was afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Was you know had all the fears and had put them in my head about you know you'll you'll lose your mind. You may never come back. And so I had those fears going in. And so those were the first things I had to to work with in the space. I went down there so with my husband, and I knew he was going to drink. And oh, and I should say, incidentally, we would not have been married if he hadn't had his ayahuasca experience. So that that put me in a mindset already where I knew that this was. The, the ayahuasca was a friend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? interesting, yeah. Um, so I, I went, you know, like I said, I, was, I felt no pressure, which was great, and I've, nobody's ever been able to pressure me into doing something like a, a drug of any kind, and I don't like to call this a drug, but at that point in my life, I saw it as a drug. Right. That's, that was my training, you know? That was the way I had been taught to look at these things. So I spoke with these people, and the more people I met, I thought, these are accomplished, intelligent, educated, for the most part, very sophisticated people who have done really interesting work. They're authors, they're artists, they're filmmakers. They were great, great people. And, you know, you'd know many of these people. You know, Dennis McKenna was there, Jeremy Narby was there, Martina Hoffman, who's one of the finest uh, visionary artists in the space, was there. Many people were there. So I was able to speak with them mm-hmm. about ayahuasca and, and about my fears. So I, they were wonderful, and they did what I've learned now. I, I realize that that's what I do for people now. I, they did for me the things I do now at parties or events where I'm, you know, helping people kind of understand where, where they're coming from and kind of relieve their fears and give some of the basics. I remember one of the men there was explaining to me how you could navigate the space, and I thought that was really interesting. And I thought, well, what do you mean navigate the space? Because I didn't like the idea of being out of control. That bothered me. And that's typical. And he said, well, to an extent you can navigate the space because you're fully conscious most of the time, most people. Some people don't, aren't, oh, I don't want to say everybody all the time, but I've always been fully conscious. So in, on the one hand, you can sort of navigate the experience, but on the other hand, you don't really want to do it too much because you want the ayahuasca to get to the place you don't know is there. Mm-hmm. So we had all these we had these conversations for a couple of days before anyone was going to drink, and by the time the night came and it was a full moon in the Amazon, we were outside and there were seventy five of us in a big circle. Wow! I thought, why not? (laughs) (laughs) And I remember drinking, and it's you know I remember it was terrible tasting, but really that's not a big memory for me. that's more now I remember it because it's, it's just, you know, somehow that, that taste, anybody who's drunk, they know what I'm talking about. Um, what happened was it was the first thing that happened when, I first, when it first began to come on for me. I opened my eyes and I looked to the side at my husband of one year, who I was very in love with and still am, and I saw his face with the grid on it like the Shipibo, um sacred geometry, they call it the Icaros. Okay. You, you, have you seen the, the textile designs that they make? I have, actually, yeah. 
It was like that was on his face, moving and in lights, huh. almost almost like you were building it in a 3D animation. Wow. So here he was, and he was smiling, and it was like his spirit self, hmm. and he was happy, and he, it, was, it was beautiful. He was beautiful. And I thought, okay, this is a friendly experience. Yeah. This is going to be good. This is going to be good. And then the next thing, and you'll laugh, because this is very, I think this is funny. When I was designing in the theater, I always loved the 60s. And my friends would tease me a little bit about it, because, you know, it would crop up in my work a lot, regardless of the era. And I love Paisley, and I've always loved Paisley. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the first thing I saw after I saw Chris with his you know, in his spirit self, I saw Paisley. I saw Paisley everywhere. It was like the whole universe of this beautiful, swirling, gorgeous Paisley, as if it was like Peter Max animation. Um, and it was, it made me laugh because I realized at that point, at that point, the connection between the di- designers of that era, basically doing psychedelics. Right. Yeah. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't made that connection yet. It was mm. a big moment for me, as silly as that sounds. Sometimes it's the most obvious things you realize in ayahuasca. You just make the aha. And for me, that was a big deal because it, it, it just said, oh, this wasn't just a random, random you know, look and feel that became popular in that era. These people found that through psychedelics. This is something you see in psychedelics, and then you put it onto patterns that are that show up in textiles and and whatever else. Yeah, that's so really that, interesting. You know, that was a big moment for me, and it was actually very healing because it, it made me realize that I I had been looking and enjoying psychedelics all these years without having actually ingested one. So, so that was uh, and that's the truth. Those were the two first moments in ayahuasca for me. Okay, and so then after that experience, like how long did it take you before you felt like um, part of what you should be doing with this knowledge and, and this experience is helping other people um, acquire it? It took a while for me. I felt like I had a lot of work to do. Um, and I never expected to be doing what I'm doing today. And the ayahuasca definitely brought me down this path. It's... Um, it's, you know, seven years later, and I don't drink as much as Chris does, and other people will move down there and, you know, do the work full-time. That's not my path either. It took a long time. It made me, I, I started to really see how it was benefiting my life, Chris's life, other friends that I had. We brought, we started to bring friends down who really wanted to go down and didn't really want to do it themselves, and we saw what happened in their lives. Um, we bonded. We became close friends. We followed each other's, you know, continual you know, personal evolution from this medicine. And it was just all so very positive. And I think the the Cosmic Sister Plant Spirit Grant part of it, which was really where I started to say, okay, I want to do something different with this. That's my own thing. That happened with a young woman who I had met in the shaman's pharmacy class. My my husband did at UMass. He he took the kids to the Amazon one year instead of teaching the class at UMass, and it was kind of a an idea we had doing doing yoga one morning. And one of the students um, who I really liked, I bonded with a lot of the students that time. I went with him. I went. I was part of the teaching experience and 
spent a week and a half with these kids down in the Amazon teaching them all of the things that we do with sustainability and medicinal plants. Not ayahuasca, however. We did not drink ayahuasca. Um, And this young woman and I, you know, we kept in touch. And when she graduated, she was pre-med. She went out to Colorado, and she was going through her life. And she called me one day, and she'd had something happen personally in her life that was very significant, and it was about somebody close in her family who had become addicted to heroin. Mm. And heroin in the Happy Valley, we call it, or the Western Massachusetts, is very sadly an epidemic, and people are dying. And it's um, the young people are often targeted, and they become addicted before they know it. And these kids can come from really good families, and suddenly, you know, you send your kid to college and they die. Mm. It's not good. Mm-hmm. So she saw this happen to somebody in her family who was close to her, and she said, I've already seen three of my friends die. I, I just didn't know what to say to them. I didn't know how to help them, and I just can't let this happen again. And I, I gave her the advice of just get her out of there as fast as possible, bring her to Colorado. And she did all this, and she saved this person's life. I mean, obviously the person had to you know, want to to do the work herself. You can't force somebody to get over an addiction. Mm -hmm. But after that happened, I thought this young woman, the student that I knew, that was Rachel Carlevale. I can say her name. She's good with that. Um, She, I just felt as an older woman, I saw this young woman who'd done this wonderful thing for somebody else, really selfless and brave. And I just, it brings tears to my eyes when I think of what she did, you know. And I thought, I don't want her to now fall into this place in her life where she's consumed by this person who's now in this intense healing process of getting over an addiction of that, at that level. And I am in a position to help her right now go down, have her ayahuasca experience, and skip some of that. Mm-hmm. And to really kind of process some of what she'd just been through. And she couldn't afford to go on her own. She was a yoga teacher and living in the boonies in Colorado, having followed a man. And all of that reminded me of of her at that age. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So there was a real big sisterly part to this when it started. And I just, I saw a young woman at a place in her life that was a turning point. And I felt, I can do this. This is something I can do right now. I'm just going to experiment with this and make it a grant. And I asked her, I said, how do you feel about this, being a grant, like a formal grant? And she says, I love it. And it empowered her. She felt empowered by this. So we just tried it. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful to be part of it, to just to feel that I was, you know, that I had helped her to get there and to find my place in that. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. You know, where where did I fit in that that sort of uh, concept, you know? Mm -hmm. And I found that it was really a sister, a cosmic sister. Yeah, and that's, Um, is is that kind of where the name came from? The name I had had before. The name was something I was doing already with women. Okay. And it was based on a network and um, sort of an affili- affiliative model rather than a competitive model where we, we help each other out in the world rather than compete. So Cosmic Sister existed, but the Cosmic Sister Plant Spirit Grant did not. Okay. And that was the first one that I did was with this young woman, Rachel. And it was fantastic. It was just fantastic. She got a ton out of it. I got a ton out of it. 
she went back to Colorado, made some big changes in her life, and she's doing great. Yeah, that's good. And incidentally, one of those things was to get engaged with her long live, long-time live-in boyfriend and who she's marrying this year. Hmm. And the one that she'd followed out to the boonies, <laughs> I mean, she didn't go to Boulder. They went to, like, Durango ca- uh, Canyon, Durango Durango something. I mean, like, I'd never even heard of this place. Okay. <laughs> and that's a typical thing for a woman to do. I don't know if you know that, but women will follow their guy hmm. to, to the middle of nowhere. And I, I felt for her. I thought, gosh, these are such important years of your life. You know, if you're going to go out to the middle of nowhere, get something great to do. Like, do something for yourself there. Don't, don't just hole up. Yeah. And she did. No, Rachel obviously came to you with with some circumstances that you recognized could be addressed in in the ayahuasca space. What is it that you specifically kind of look for in a candidate um, or somebody who is interested in doing this? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I had known Rachel, and so that's a that is significant. I knew her. I trusted her. I knew she would be great. She was interested in the medicine. Um, she was interested in integrated health. She had that background. I am interested in people who are. You know, I, I hate to say it, but it's true. To ha- they have to have a base stability psychologically. Mm-hmm. There are people out there that are, I feel are just out of my league. They, they need a lot more um, psychological care. And I really, I, I, I hope they get it. I mean, I really feel for them. I'm very compassionate for their situations. But that is not something that I'm in a place to take on, at least not at this point. So I'm looking for someone who has a good core stability um, and I tend to be interested in, in women who have creativity in the communications mediums, whatever that is. It could be writing, art, photography, some way of expressing their experience after they have it. Because to me, so much of the medicine work is the work you do for yourself and then the work you do sharing it with the world. Mm. So I've, I think that those are the only things I can say. I mean, I can say these are really nice women. They're, uh, they're good-hearted people. They're intelligent. They are creative. They all have these things in common, but other than that, not a lot. They're pretty diverse. Are you, are you helping people who are trying to overcome something significant in their lives, or are you looking for you know, just people who are curious? I have um, learned in the medicine, in my, and this is my own opinion, so at this point, I think that if somebody is in, in really serious spiritual crisis, that it's not really the greatest time to go. Mm. I think it's better if you're in a relatively stable circumstance, but maybe you've just had something happen, or you had something happen oh, six months ago, or something like that, where you're, you're not going in the middle of the, the, the height of passion. Okay. So they were all in transition, I will say that. They were all in transition. But other than that, there's really not, I can't put my finger on it, not yet. I think that they, let's see, I'm going through the different ones, definitely with Rachel. With Amy, she was, she was doing well, she was, but she was in transition. She had just gotten through a very bad relationship, and she had actually divorced her um, husband and father of two kids. And she was trying to figure out what to do about that because he's a good, he was a good guy. He is a good guy. He had some things that he needed to work on in his own life. So she went down to work with, on hers, and then she came back and promptly sent him down. Hmm. 
even though they had actually been through a divorce, they are now back together, living together with three beautiful children, having sort of the most idyllic marriage I can <laughs> think of that I know. So I would say that while she wasn't in a personal crisis, she was certainly in a transition place in her life, trying to figure out what do I do with the father of my children. I want him in my life, but I can't be with him if he has these problems. Yeah. And he, uh, he got it, and he went down and worked on himself and came back a different guy. So they're a beautiful example of couples therapy, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. And I would say with Robin, um, she was going through something that had built up over her whole life. And it had come to a head in a way, you know, come to a, a point of no return where it was really, it was really stopping her in life. She had, she won't have a problem with me sharing this. Her, her father died when she was still in her mother's womb. Mm. He was in an accident. And so she never knew him, so she didn't have the grief of, of losing a father when she was a little girl. But what she did, because kids are funny this way, humans are funny this way, she had somehow translated that as, he, I wasn't even important enough to my daddy for him to wait around to meet me. Hmm. And over the years, that had grown in her imagination, in her heart, in her, just in her spirit. And it had reached a point in her life where it was holding her back. And she had one of the most profound healing experiences I've ever witnessed, hmm. where she basically had a paradigm shift. She went back and actually experienced. She was there at the accident, and she was experiencing it from her father's perspective, and it was the direct polar opposite. It was his last moment, oh, my God, I won't even get to see my baby girl. Hmm. who will take care of her. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 was, it was life-changing. Well, yeah. So what I was going to say before, um, there's a, there seems to be an undercurrent of eldership um, in this, and it's something we've talked about hmm. briefly, um, where you've recognized you have an opportunity to help others uh, the same way that ayahuasca has helped you. And maybe you can speak a little bit about how the psychedelic renaissance that we're in right now is really interesting in that you've got kind of the first generation, second generation of people from the 60s and 50s being able to help the people of today, um, you know, guide them through the process and and kind of give them a little bit of assistance. What's your experience? I'm really glad you asked that because I hadn't quite gotten to Susan Sheldon, who so far is the, the elder of the of the grant recipient. She was 62 when she was there. And Susan um, had definitely experienced with psychedelics and plant spirit from the past. And she went down having um, dealt with her, the, it's interesting, a, a different change in her life. Her mother had passed away and her brother had passed away, her only sibling, unexpectedly. She had expected the mother, although it had been a really hard transition. It's tough to lose parents, you know, as you go through life and to be their caretakers for a while, and then they're gone. And then she had this, just had no idea her her brother had an illness he wasn't telling her about, and he died too. So suddenly she did not have any of that part of her family. And she felt it was a huge transition in her life and, and a stage of life she was going through that was like 
you know, what it, you know, it was an identity thing. Who am I now? I'm not my mother's daughter. I'm not my brother's sister. Who am I? And she had really wonderful experiences with the ayahuasca that helped her with that tremendously. And she'd be better to tell the story. It's hard to tell someone else's story. But one of the things that came out of that was she is the one that came up with the idea of psychedelic elders. And we talk about this sometimes. Now, she's older than I am. I'm 50. So she, she would have been, you know, a, a young adult in, in the time when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I didn't do the psychedelics in the 60s. Kids didn't do that. That wasn't really appropriate. You kind of left the adults or the young, you know, teenagers when they started going down that path. You kind of yeah. <laughs> went home. <laughs> um, I mean, we were at their dances and things like that. But, the, you know, the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, the rock and roll was okay, but the sex and drugs was not appropriate for a child, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I, while I remember the 60s, I, I don't remember that part, but she does. And my husband does. Chris does. He's 62. He'll be 63 in July. So they're psychedelic elders. Mm-hmm. And she says it's different because she says to me, when, you know, back when I was you know, doing all this, there was nobody you could talk to about it. And now all these young people coming up who are really into it, I mean, they're really into this scene, okay? They have so many questions. And there's some wisdom that especially people like Susan and Chris have that, that you know, they didn't have that same kind of um, information. They didn't have somebody to go to. And I think that the wisdom, wisdom is wisdom. You have to earn it. You could be the brightest kid in the world, but you still, you know, I mean, the only way you can tell it to a younger person, like if you meet some really smart 20-something, you know, they, they think they know everything, right? And we did, too, when we were 20-something. But it, sometimes I'll say to them, yeah, but do you remember when you were 16? <laughs> you know, don't you think that you could maybe tell a 16-year-old something? Maybe you'd have a perspective on life that when you're 26 that you didn't have when you're 16. It's a little like that. Yeah. And sometimes they're open to it. It depends. Yeah, I mean, from my experience with this kind of stuff, and with anything in general, it's, it, e- the easiest way for someone to learn from somebody who's trying to teach them is when they want to learn, you know. And yeah. and like you said, there's a group of people out there that are kind of fueling the psychedelic renaissance who want this information, and fortunately there are a lot of people out there who are willing to share it. Um, so there's it's like a two-way street, you know. You, you could talk all day to somebody, and I think that's the difference between a 16-year-old uh, who thinks they know it all, because they're, they're not yet to the point where they feel like they, um, they need to learn something, I guess. And maybe you haven't earned their respect yet sure. either. You know, like sure. sometimes you... I, I see this with Chris a lot. It's, it's really fun to watch. I, I do his uh, website, and on the back end with the Google, Google Analytics over the last few years, it's been a curious flip. Um, it used to be all baby boomers, or predominantly baby boomers, and there's still a baby boomer crowd that loves Medicine Hunter. You know, they, they're mm-hmm. really interested. But there's suddenly this group that's huge, which is mostly male, between the age of 18 and 20, 24 to 30. Huh. So that's what, exactly what we're talking about. Like, yeah. they're looking for a mentor. Right. And I see it when we go to psychedelic conferences or end up in Iquitos, Peru, and there are all these ayahuasca travelers, you know, the young guys. And they're usually really hip guys. And they're really bright, talented guys, so I'm kind of proud of them. I'm like, yeah, honey, they, they're, they're cool, and they know you're cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm finding it happening to myself, too, and that's weird, because 50 is a strange number. 
it's it's hard to you know i i'm humble i i look at myself and go well this is what i think i know at this point in my life mm-hmm. <laughs> you know i'm careful when i give advice well okay so let's let's uh that's a good way to segue into something i, I wanted to make sure we talked about which is sexism and um ah. and just the uh the different situation and perspective uh that females have an experience in the psychedelic renaissance and uh, specifically in the ayahuasca space, um, just to kind of give other people background on this, you know, it's been in the news that tourism to Peru is is really blossomed, uh, but along with that are shamans who aren't really shamans, but they're just people taking advantage of others, uh, specifically women in a lot of instances. Um, so what's your take on that and, and how have you tried to address that with your work? Okay, there's a lot there. Yeah, I know. Um, Sorry. <laughs> I w- I w- it's okay. I would just say that our culture in, you know, let's just say Western culture or, you know, United States, just to keep it easy. I mean, I grew up in New Zealand from, from 9 to 19, and it's just pretty much the same culture. So, you know, Western culture, it is a sexist culture. And in some ways we've improved, and in some ways we haven't, but some of these cultural issues prevail. Uh, we're in an interesting time with that. Some people are actually beginning to talk about gender and really, really explore it. I mean, like even talking about people, all, all different types of people, really exploring, you know, what is gender. So that's good. That's healthy. But there's still all this stuff. It's still, you know, I mean, it is a patriarchy. It's a male-dominated world. And it's been that way for a very long time. So we've got an imbalanced system. And when you have that, it's, it's hard to make change happen. You'll, you'll have people, for instance, in Hollywood who are controlling the movie industry so that they continue to pump out the sexist images and sexist roles and sexist scripts, and it just keeps on perpetuating the same thing over and over and over again. And unfortunately, some of the wounds that these young women are getting from this are the same as I got when I was their age. It hasn't really improved, mm-hmm. and in some ways it's worse. So I, um, it's interesting because it's kind of a full circle to Rachel Carlevale and her, the kids who came to the Shaman's Pharmacy, they were young 20s, like 21. I think it was 18 to 21 was the age group. And we spent a lot of time talking there, um, and it was one of the first times I'd spent you know, with that age group. And I found that they were struggling with the same kinds of sexist issues that I was and the same kind of eating disorders and body image distortion issues. Nothing had changed. It was exactly the same. And that was a bit depressing on one hand. And on the other hand, it was kind of like, we have this in common. Now we can talk. Yeah. You know, I might seem old to you, but I was there. I was exactly like that when I was your age. Nothing, you know, I had the same thoughts, the same cultural issues, you know, that would express themselves in my life. So there's that part of it. And, and then on the other hand, we have a, a, a culture now where it's perfectly fine to be a woman doctor. And it's perfectly fine to be a woman lawyer. In fact, there's loads of great women lawyers and women doctors. They, you know, when I was growing up, the women who were older than me in the 70s, they were, they were pushing that envelope. And it wasn't easy. So we're in some ways we're we're improving and in other ways we're not. But there's some cultural issues that remain the same. Here's an example that I'm finding in the psychedelic renaissance. 
You know, it's, it's a well-known fact that if there's a group of experts in a room, let's say a producer brought together, you know, five experts, and two of them are women and three of them are men, and the, the host, whether, you know, whether it's a male or female host, asks a question that any of them could answer as well. That host will typically ask a male. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it is. Even a woman will do this. And this is the basis of what Cosmic Sister was initially, you know, conceived from, you know, the idea of don't do that. Ask the woman. Give the woman the spot. Because it's this self-fulfilling prophecy. If you continue to give the male the the media spot, then the males, you know, will get the more attention attention in the media. They'll get, because that's what makes you somebody in this world we live in. You continue to build your career, and the woman falls behind. And then you, you know, the man has the celebrity, so the man gets asked again. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So we're having the same thing happen in the psychedelic renaissance already, and it's just basically begun. Already we're finding that, they know, predominantly the authors are male. If you go to Amazon and you look up ayahuasca books and psychedelic books, you will find some female authors, but they are almost all male. If you look at the news, they are almost all male. And these are, some of these guys are great, some of them are not, um, and there are some fantastic women. So one of the things I want to do is to help change that, you know, nip that in the bud. It would be a total shame in, in a, you know, subculture that, you know, professes to be enlightened to fall into that same pattern. Right. And, and if you can, um, who are some of the other women in, in the Renaissance that uh, you would say anybody that's interested in this stuff should seek out? Well, I'm currently, you know, there are, there are quite a few of them, but I will say there, there are a few of them that I'm looking at right now. Um, you know, we'll circle back to the sex and shamanism thing yeah, in, in yeah. a bit, because that is a, a sort of a different thing. That's really about sexual predators. Right. But um, I am working, I would say... Nache Devano is very interesting. She's a, a young woman. I think she's maybe 30. She teaches in um, Pennsylvania, and she's, she has a Ph.D. in psychedelic studies. And she's really doing very interesting work, and her students adore her. Um, so she's somebody I definitely would, would look at. Um, she also, I would say, Amber Lyon, even though Amber is not a psychedelics expert, she is, um, she's an Emmy Award-winning um, correspondent. She was with CNN, but she had an experience where psychedelics changed her life, and in, in having this experience, she launched a venue called Reset, and she also hired an editor-in-chief who's a woman, who's awesome. So they're very psychedelic-friendly, and it's run by a woman. You know the whole the whole thing. You can feel that energy there. Yeah. Um, I'd say that uh, I I count cannabis in the same sort of subset as the psychedelic renaissance because for me cannabis is a psychedelic. It isn't for everybody, but it is for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a lightweight, <laughs> and so I would say Ladybud, that's with a D, is a wonderful venue, and it's run by women, and they're all great. So there, there are women in the space doing yeah. good work, and they're, they're getting out there, but it comes down to we have to be the media to get the media. Yeah. That's, it's the same thing. It's the, there's nothing new about that to us. 
Yeah, and well, then let's get that back to sex and, and shamanism because when women do find themselves in the news uh, with in the psychedelic realm, a lot of times it's this kind of stuff where you know there's shamans taking advantage of women. Um, so speak to that a little bit if you can. Well, that would go back to some of the cultural wounds that I had sort of touched upon with the you know eating disorders and things like that. Um, we are taught from day one, if you, you know, if you are born a woman in our culture, you, you're a girl, obviously, at first. You very quickly learn that you're, even if you have a lot of strong women in your life, you still learn very, very quickly that the world is run predominantly by males. The males control everything. So you, you begin to learn how to get what you need by doing what you need to do for that man, whether it's be pretty or sweet or, you know, you know, rub their ego a little bit, make them feel good about themselves. Whatever it is that they need, you begin to, you begin to sort of, you know, play roles in order to get through the world that, that you're in, that you find yourself in. And this leads to um, wounds that can be quite deep sometimes, and they can be everything. I mean, there's, there's, you know, this is a very big subject. You can have people who are deeply wounded and people who are just aggravated by it. Um, mm-hmm. But we find that we, we run into barriers just by being female that shouldn't be there at all. They're, they're absurd, antiquated barriers. So we learn that really early on. If, if you're an ambitious girl, you know, you know you're smart and you know you're talented and you're strong. You know, it's not just some pop culture concept of girl power. Girls are, girls are great and they grow into women. And, you know, along the way you keep getting, you bump into these walls that shouldn't be there. You know, girls can't do that. That's not a girl thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we still have this. It's not gone. I mean, it's better than it was. But it's, it's still there. Uh, so, so with the sexism part, the, the sex, and, and sex and shamanism part, it's a whole different part of it. Our culture is still predominantly judging a woman. A woman's value is predominantly her looks, which is also a very subjective thing, and youth, which is also a very unhealthy thing to just... You know, uh, only young women are attractive, and after that they can just disappear. They don't exist anymore. Um, that's an unhealthy thing. Everybody ages. There's nothing you can do about it. So that kind of thing is permeating our culture, and it causes all kinds of wounds. And these young women, are they're, they're judging themselves based on the culture around them, but they know that's wrong, most of them. They know that their, their value isn't based on how, quote, sexy, unquote, they are or pretty or desirable, but they are still driven by these things because it's been drummed into their heads since birth. You know, and this, by the way, this happens to men, too. And You know, men are also dealing with cultural, unhealthy cultural issues, and a lot of men are beginning to wake up to that, which is really great, and I totally support them because we're all in this together, and that's a big, big part of what I'm about is, you know, we're, we're working with women in order to see if we can stop this, imbalance from happening in the psychedelic community before it's too late. But really, we're all in this together. And we live on this planet, and there's about 50% male and about 50%, you know, female. Mm -hmm. And I love men. So I'm not one of these people who is just all about women. 
it's not, that's not what it's about for me. It's about showing these are the cultural things that we can get rid of and stop hurting ourselves with, and men can do the same. Yeah. So with, with the shamanism, you, you, this is a, it's a whole other issue with the sex and shamanism. You've got these girls now coming from our culture, young women usually, can be older, who've got, usually got sexual issues to begin with. Not always, but just from the beginning, it's like rape is never okay. Right? Let's just get that off the table. Rape is rape. Right. But when you're talking about more things like seduction or being um, victimized by a sexual predator, then there becomes this part that is your responsibility. There's a part that's the woman's responsibility. Like mm-hmm. I said, rape is rape. That's not what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But when you go down to the Amazon to drink ayahuasca with some shaman, and you got to go down there with knowing and knowing that it's not right ever to have sex with that shaman. You just don't do it. It's inappropriate. It's unhealthy. If you're going down to get healing, that is not going to heal you. That's going to hurt you. And if you know, for me, this is one of it's it's one of the most difficult subjects to talk about in the community. People don't want to talk about it, but they know it's an issue. And it's becoming more and more so because, like you said, you know, it's just like in the 70s with the gurus. It's no different. You know, there's going to be sexual predators who go, hey, look, you know, all these gringo girls are coming down to, you know, Peru, and, you know, they're pretty hot, and uh, they're Mm -hmm. pretty easy. You know, one of the, one of the famous shamans. Uh, I have I didn't hear this, but I heard this from Dennis McKenna. He said he actually said uh, something to the effect of, "Hey, if they're attractive and they come to me, then they're they're you know, and they want to have sex. Well, you know, hey, hmm. <laughs> okay." <laughs> yeah, and and I mean that completely undermines whatever credibility they have as somebody who claims to be a healer. You know, I think so. Yeah. I think that the, the really good guys know that. Yeah. They know that. And that's something I spoke with Joe Tafur about because he's, he is a shaman now. He's been in shaman, shamanic training now for five years. So he's a medical doctor from the States, and he's cute, and he's smart, and he's interesting, and he's 40, and he's single. So you know he's going to have opportunities, right? right? So it's very important for him to address this and really, really think, now, where do I stand on this issue? You know, and he says, you know, it's sad because the shamans who do this, who are sexual predators and cross the line, they just make it bad for the good guys. Right. They they, they ruin the the good guys' names and make it difficult for them to, you know, deal with their own reputations. You know, you can't throw them all into the same pot. Mm -hmm. And it's a reputation issue. Yeah, and the it's media an the media is is attracted to the negative. So mm-hmm. if they're looking mm-hmm. at a scene and they they're going to look for where there's fire, and uh, obviously then that ruins the scene in the eyes of anybody who's not in the scene because all they know, all that other person knows, is that oh well, women are going down and getting taken advantage of by shamans. This is a terrible thing that we're allowing to happen, and and we shouldn't allow ayahuasca. Um, yeah, tourism. don't let your daughters go down there; they'll get raped. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, but the the irony of this is, is again, you know, when I was growing up in in high school and college, they would give us these classes where they were really basic, you know. But when you're young, you're you're naive. You don't know. I mean, by default, you're naive. 
you know? Mm-hmm. So you don't know some of this stuff. You don't understand sexual predators. I mean, you might if you've been sexually molested, because there's an awful lot of that, too, that happens with young girls. But if you're, you know, if you haven't had that horrible experience, you're, you're vulnerable. So you go to college, and you don't know not to walk home at night, you know, from your dorm room or from your class to your dorm room. Or you don't know not to go to that party and, you know, with that cute guy you like and, and have that drink he gives you and wind up in your dorm room raped. That happens. It happens a lot. Yeah. And I know women who had that happen, and I know women now, and I live in a college town. It happens. So what they'll do is they'll get the girls around, the colleges will get the young women around and, and, and teach them. You know, here are some things you can do to at least not put yourself in that position. You know, don't do that. Travel together. Travel with a woman together. If you're going to go to a party, bring your girlfriends with you. Agree with each other not to do that, that you're not going to sleep with the shaman. Yeah. You know, and then if one of your girlfriends just really, really feels that they're just madly in love with the shaman, and then you know something's up. Hmm. And you can say to your girlfriend, you promised you weren't going to sleep with the shaman. Yeah, and it's a it's a delicate situation. Well, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like part of what Cosmic Sister is about is to educate women, um, you know, going into these situations with some of that information that you just spoke of, but also just general preparation for getting people or getting women um, in the right frame of mind to maximize the experience. Uh, would that be accurate? Yes, absolutely, because these are women from all, all times of life, all walks of life. You know, not everybody is susceptible to sexual predators. Mm-hmm. That's, not their, that's not their path. That's not their, you know, their life experience. I, I was not really very, I, I, I should say, knock on wood, I was lucky. You know, mm-hmm. I had, um, for some reason, I didn't walk into that. I could see through men like that. But um, both of my sisters were definitely susceptible and were wounded. Hmm. So my blood sisters. So I, I've seen it close up and personal. And many of my girlfriends, you know, had the situations where they went to college and found themselves, you know, woke up in their dorm room having been, you know, violated. Yeah, hmm. yeah it's it's not okay. So So, you know, yeah, I think that we're protecting the younger women because... Look, I, you know, this is, this is something I, I, it's kind of hard to put out there sometimes with men, but in the old world, in the sort of ancient, at least the ancient Greek days, there was this wonderful metaphor with the moon and the fates, where the moon was considered the female. And all the cycles of the moon, you know, coming through from the sickle moon all the way to the, to the moon when it disappears, you know, mm-hmm. the dark moon. All the phases of the moon represented the phases of women, of a woman's life. So that all of those phases were beautiful and important. And there was no separation where you, you weren't taught to, to hate the younger woman or not trust the older woman. You know, women were supportive with each other, or at least that was the ideal. And in fact, if you look at the ancient archetype of that, which I think really represents Cosmic Sister very well, which is why I'm bothering to share this with you. But it was really a metaphor for time and fate of life, you know, the path of life, because all of those women's stages were still one woman. It represented one woman. You could see them in their different phases. You might, you know, walk walk in, you might see the fates as three women, the virgin, the mother, 
and the wise woman. But you might also see them as fate, as one woman. And then there was the dark moon, which was, you know, death. And then there was a rebirth cycle, which mm-hmm. is interesting in a different way. So where I'm, what I'm getting at with this is that any time a dominating culture, whether it be colonialist or patriarchy or whatever, gets, wants to weaken the people, the group of people they want to control, they separate those people psychologically in some way. They pit them against each other. And that is the best way to keep them down. So what they've done with us, with women, what, whoever it is, it's not all men, but it's, you know, the men that really do want to keep us down for whatever reason, they have made it so that we don't trust each other at our different ages of life. And I want to work against that with Cosmic Sister. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and, and that sort of lends itself to what I was going to ask about next, which is your experience with ayahuasca turned into Cosmic Sister, and now you personally have been affected by the experiences, and, and ayahuasca has opened up different doors for you through this experience. Mm. So maybe you can speak a little bit about what uh, opportunities have popped up for you and, and what your interests are now uh, that you've had some time to to work through ayahuasca. It's interesting to, that you asked that. It's a very difficult subject because it, it sort of almost breaks up into three categories. One is Cosmic Sister, which is definitely, um, it was there before ayahuasca, but it's, ayahuasca has, um, has informed that path a lot for me. Um, but it was, you know, when I said the, I gave the example of, you know, women are born, we're born female in this world, so any time you're born female in this world, you're going to have that experience. So any woman who loves themselves is going to be a feminist. So that wasn't new to me. I've always been that in my life. But yet the ayahuasca helped me to reconnect with that in a broader way and to reach out and to really hone it into something. So ayahuasca was very helpful for me with that, really to look at my own wounds and the wounds of others and see connections there, you know, see that we're all in this together, and including men as well. So that, there's that. Then there's the, the personal work, I would say, that's relationship-based. So that's everything from my, you know, my relationship with my husband, who just walked in, um, relationships with my family, with my friends, relationships all through my life, how, what, what role I play in the relationships and how to forgive people for things, maybe things that, that were harmful to me along the way that have, you know, stuck in me and hurt me. You know, so relationship work, work on your own um, personal self. And I think that ayahuasca basically opened me up to other plant spirit medicines, especially sacred plant spirit medicines, which tend to be either psychoactive or psychedelic or both. And I, I will just say this, you know, a lot of the young people are really into the synthetics, uh, the synthetic psychedelics and... Right. Um, you know, I don't want to be judgmental and, you know, whatever floats your boat, I guess, but I'm not at all interested in that. Mm-hmm. I, I really, having worked with Chris and, and learned about ethnobotany, these plants have been, you know, part of, they're in relationship with human beings all over the world for, for sometimes thousands and thousands of years. These cultures evolve with these plants. So the plants, you know, you know a plant's important when you go to a village and they've got a, a ritual around a plant, you know, or a festival around a plant. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know that plant probably has some real properties. Whether it's been in a lab and gone through our system of saying it's okay or not, you know there's going to be something there. It works. It does something. Like chocolate, for instance. Mm-hmm. Cacao, you know. Coffee. Right. Tobacco, which has some dark side to it. But, you know, you see this, and, and we know that these plants, these have been put inside the human body for thousands of years, whereas these synthetics, which are literally being made every day by computers now, I mean, they're even talking about 3D printing psychedelic drugs. Yeah. For real. <laughs> I don't want that going in my body. No. No, and it, and it, it's we've talked about this briefly before too, but it seems like that's a byproduct of the prohibition of you know natural yes. substances. You know, people are you know, they can't get LSD, so they're like, all right, well, let's see what, what we can make that's you know maybe not LSD, but it's close to some kind of crazy trip that we can give ourselves. Except that LSD oddly is a synthetic, but it was originally a plant. Right. So and that's an odd, it's an odd choice, and it's one that that bothers us. We talk about that in our household, you know, yeah. you know, because I say, "But honey, wasn't LSD originally a plant?" And he's like, "Yes, it was." Yeah. But it isn't, you know, it isn't now. Right, right. So you know, I want to be open-minded on the one hand, and I got to say, some of these young people, you know, are very hip, but I'm still not interested in those synthetic drugs. And, mm-hmm. and also some of the people who are doing really good work with therapy and these synthetic psychedelics, look, you know, if somebody gets well from it or gets some ease, eases their suffering, you know, someone who's dealing with post-traumatic stress syndrome, they're able to get their hands on some kind of synthetic in a therapeutic situation and they get, they get healed or get help, hey, who am I to say that's a bad thing? But from my taste, I am just simply not interested in those I'm interested in the plants because they're part of nature. Yeah, and and there's thousands of years of, you know, known use with these things that... Yes, bioassays, we call them in this household, which means trying it on yourself. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Chris likes to say, you can't know a plant till you put it in your body. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I don't put them all in my body, but I figure if if a culture did it for thousands of years and they're okay, in fact maybe they're outstanding and amazing, then maybe that plant's pretty good. Right, right. And and hopefully, that's my hope with the psychedelic renaissance, is it reconnects us with a knowledge that we've lost sight of, uh, you know, over the last 200 years. Or, you know, our modern society has, has basically um, tried to get us to forget about, you know. And it's not just with psychedelics, but spirituality in general. Um, yes. You know, just reconnecting with a more... Um, you know, reconnecting with nature and through that, finding a spiritual enlightenment. Yes, and, I, you know, back to the ayahuasca, you know, that's one of the classic things that ayahuasca will give people is even people who think they're connected to nature, like me. You know, I love nature, but I still have been closer and closer and closer I get to nature through ayahuasca. It just brings me closer. You know, my, I mentioned my father was taught science to artists, you know, so I grew up with a scientist teacher, and he was one of these guys who is one of these guys. I should say he's still the same. He hasn't changed a bit. Teaching is his, you know, it's the greatest form of art to him. It's his passion and his calling. He's a great educator. So he taught us from a very young age all this wonderful fundamental science, right, which I'm really grateful for. However, there's some of it that's a bit weird, like disconnecting yourself in order to, in order to dissect an animal. 
mm-hmm. so that you can learn about its, you know, how it works, how it ticks, yeah. like a machine, you know. And I'm still getting work. The last time I was in, um, in ceremony, I got work about that. I learned about, you know, I, I had a memory being back with my father, teaching me how to cut open a fish and showing me all the innards and saying, this is the heart. This, you know, pumps the blood through the body. And this is, you know, pulling all the bits and pieces out of the fish. And I was very young. It's a young memory. And I was there. It's, it's more than just a memory. It's like you're there, okay? You, you, you can, people say this and try to express it to somebody who hasn't tried ayahuasca, but you really are, you're, it's as if you've been transported in time back to that moment. Hmm. And I remember his kind voice, and I remember my horror at uh, discovering that one of the fish he was dissecting, which we ate, you know, was a female, and that there were eggs. She was full of eggs. Huh. And my response to that was, on the one hand, horror, and on the other hand, my daddy loves me and he's teaching me science, so I don't want to let him know that this is horrible to me. Right. Hmm. So disconnecting myself disassociating myself and learning how to disassociate from a living being. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it was a big moment for me. Yeah. I, it was, in, and very healing, because it, it really showed me some of the roots of, of uh, some of the things that I'm fighting in the animal rights movement. Mm-hmm. Now, my father is not the person I'm fighting, but that, that tendency in the science world that in some cases has become extreme, where you'll have people running into the wild and you know, catching baby monkeys and putting them in cages and, 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 you know, cutting open their brains while they're alive and torturing them till they die for the sake of science, you know, that's a messed up human being yeah. who can do that. Right. That person is very, very ill. Yeah. But it starts from that same idea that my father was trying to teach me, is right. we're learning about the, the body. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's a really it's a really fine line, um, you know, between education and then going down that slippery slope where it just becomes easier. I mean, when you walk outside, when I walk outside here in Kansas, and it's middle of summer and and uh, the mosquitoes are out, you don't think twice about swatting <laughs> swatting the, the right, mosquitoes that right. are on your arms. And I have to be honest; it sounds a little crazy, but I'm you know I've I'm a, I've become more connected with nature to the point where I'm aware of my dislike for having to kill a mosquito that's on my arm. It, it bothers you know, me now. I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome yeah, and I know what you're talking about. I have to be careful because I'm a vegetarian, and if I think too much about the plants that I'm also eating, I get weird. So I just kind of have to say, okay. Yeah, you, it's, if you want to <laughs> maintain sanity, there seems to be, a, you know, because I can't, I mean, I'm not going to be able to go outside and not, you know, subconsciously swat at mosquitoes, but I it... it in the house, in our house, you know, we'll see a spider or something. I, I never kill him anymore. And um, I used to do that all the time because it seemed like the easiest way to take care of something. You don't think about yes. it. And well, I congratulate you because I think that's wonderful, and that's being a real human. That's, see, yeah. for me, you know, back to my, my dad, you know, because I did a lot of work this last time with my father, which was interesting. You know, the other side of it is every single moment of my existence, he would tell us, you know, from day one, like it's, it's, it's just as much a part of who I am as, as learning how to speak and walk, is that we are animals. Mm-hmm. Human beings are animals. And most people don't think that way. They don't just like, that's part of my life. I know I'm an animal. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just the facts. We are. We think we're so different from the others. 
And all of the others are different from each other, but we're all also living beings, and there's a miracle to that. Yeah. There's a miracle to being alive. And I think that this plant spirit, if you will, this whatever it is in this plant, this ayahuasca plant, which is actually a combination of plants. Right. You know, it's not one plant. You can't have ayahuasca with one plant. Um, but there's, there are people who talk about the spirit of the plant and that living, be, you know, that, that shared DNA, that DNA of that plant going into your body as a human being and how it responds to the human body. And that takes us down a whole other conversation, but it's a very interesting one, you know, because that's really the communication between this plant and this living being called human humans, you know, and what, you know, some people talk about how that's how the plant gets around the world. It's an intelligence. Hmm. About three and a half years ago, I had a, a very deep ayahuasca experience with a dolphin. Um, I was working on this. It's a very sad story. Uh, there's a New Zealand dolphin that probably will be the first dolphin that, you know, marine dolphin that humans managed to wipe off the planet. Mm. And it's really ironic that it would be a progressive country like New Zealand that pe- people think it's green, you know. Yeah. And I, I felt really, really connected to this, to this dolphin, and I saw the dolphin in my vision. The vision was that the dolphin came to me and was like, yes, thank you. Now you're, you're helping us like so many other good, good people. And, you know, you're one of us now. Thank you so much. And all these other dolphins from all over the world, all these different subspecies and species of dolphins came in their little pods from all over the world. It was as if I was in sort of this universe of underwaterness. And there wasn't anything like, yay me, I'm going to be the savior of the dolphins. It was really more about, thank you, now you've joined the rest of us. You know, it was like I had arrived in some group. And the feeling was that the group was global. And it, and it is, in fact, global. There is a huge wildlife and animal rights movement happening in the whole world. And because of the digital revolution, we have access to people all over the world, and we can connect in ways we've never been able to connect. So maybe, just maybe, there's hope. But the other side of that is the facts are bad. We are wiping out these animals. We probably won't be able to save that dolphin. We probably will lose many dolphin species. It's not looking good. But the, fact, the thing is that in, in that ayahuasca experience, I was reconnected with something that I loved from the moment I was born, that I had put aside. I love animals. I've always loved animals. And it had been hurting me to see them suffer in, you know, in the world. I had, been, I had been increasingly upset by what I was seeing around me with animal rights. And it was, it was harming me. It was hurting my spirit. I was getting sick. Hmm. So I um, started to work with animal rights, and I will never look back. You also mentioned to me, a um, couple conversations ago, um, some interest in uh, peyote and, and the tribes in Mexico that use peyote, and and, and you you sense that there's been a connection uh, made through ayahuasca to this um, this interest. Can you speak about that a little bit? I will. It's beautiful, really, as a place to sort of circle around, bring all of these things together, because peyote is another sacred plant spirit. So it's, it's a plant, it's a psychedelic, just like ayahuasca, but it's different from ayahuasca. Now, I've tried it a little bit, just enough to know it's, it's very different. Um, I'm curious about it. 
And I, I have, because I understand ayahuasca and the Shipibo especially, I know a lot about them. I'm obviously still learning, but there's, there's a good amount of knowledge that I have and appreciation for their culture. So when I look at the peyote cultures, the one that kept drawing me to them was the Huichol people in Mexico. And it was because of their art. Just like the Shipibo art, it's really beautiful. It's like this expression of the ayahuasca in their art that I was drawn to. So with the peyote traditions, the huichol especially, the huichol people in the peyote traditions, their art, you may, you would probably know it, but not everybody knows it. It's this very colorful, fantastical art. Some of it's beadwork, some of it's yarn art, but it's like these paintings with yarn. Sure. And they, what I love about it is not just it's gorgeous, but it's very expressive and it's all about nature and animals. So the more I learned about these people, the more I was like, this is, this is interesting. You know, what's going on here? You know, there's these deers and these, you know, these snakes and these birds and these, you know, and also nature elements like fire and air. And, you know, they, they, were, they were basically, I learned, that they were shape-shifting into these different elements and different animals through their peyote rituals. And I thought, this is interesting. I, I, I want to I learn more about that. So I'm going down that path with Chris, with his work, and he's interested too. And, you know, we're thinking, well, how can we get down there to Mexico and, you know, somehow get invited to one of these peyote pilgrimages that happen once a year, and they're very secretive, and, you know, the, the culture is really careful to, you know, keep their culture going without too much outside influence, and, and that's going on. And on the other side, I'm working with this fabulous woman called um, Maggie Howell at the Wolf Conservation Center in Salem, New York, and I'm working with her um, in, in support of the Lobo work she's doing, and Lobo means wolf in Mexican, you know, in Spanish. And so the wolf in Mexico was the Lobo. And we, you know, we call it the, the, the Mexican gray wolf, which is the same thing as the lobo. And it was pretty much wiped out. Uh, we wiped it out. Westerners wiped it out, uh, as in killed it, and almost to the point of extinction. There were very, very few left, and they were brought into captivity and captive bred, which is, I was working on this very deep piece with her and learning about these issues and captive breeding and all of that, and this horrible history that's not really that old. It's like 100 years ago, 50 years ago. This, this is an ancient history. This is recent history where we're just wiping a species off the planet hmm. in our own country. And, you know, animals don't have national borders like we do. So we share this wolf with Mexico. So, so all of this is going on exactly the same time, and Chris and I are on some, you know, medicine hunt somewhere. We're in the, we're in the uh, airport, and we're stuck in the lounge, and I have my little laptop, and I have it on, and I'm like, wait a minute. These peyote people, this, these sweet old people, they go on this pilgrimage in the desert once a year, and they commune with the animal spirits through their sacred plant medicine, and they, and they become these animals. But isn't that exactly the same place on the map where the Lobo would have roamed before we wiped it out? Hmm. So both of my worlds came perfectly together in that, in that case, in this situation. And I thought, I'm, I must follow this. Mm-hmm. So I began to look at it, and sure enough, I thought, well, first of all, I thought, why aren't I seeing wolves in the art 
that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And I thought, of course it makes sense. There are no wolves. This hmm. is more recent art. The wolves have been killed. Hmm. There's no way that these people in the past didn't have wolves in their art. Because wolves are a higher predator. They're, they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're incredible animals. So why would somebody not, you know, who communes all of nature and all of the animal spirits around them, there's no way that they wouldn't have, you know, had wolves. So not only did they have wolves, I found, I had to really go deep to find this out, not only did they worship wolves, but they actually believed that they came from wolves originally. The, the Huichol people believed that the original human beings were wolves. And it would have been the Mexican gray wolf or the lobo, because that's the wolf that would have been in their region. And I'm thinking, wow, see, there it is. And that's almost lost. That's almost lost amazing human information, you know, cultural, beautiful cultural tradition, almost gone. And I thought, how am I going to learn more about this? Does anybody on the planet know anything about this anymore? And I finally, you know, I mean, I had to order old books from references that I found on ancient pieces of, you know, HTML online. (laughs) (laughs) And I found this woman who's an anthropologist who married a Weichel shaman from the wolf shamanism tradition. He's also an artist, a very good artist. And I am going to be interviewing her next week. (laughs) And it's hard to put it into words because it's a complex subject, but... What was curious to me is that the people, this is all about cultural preservation. We're, we're losing, just like we're losing the animals and the diversity in life, we're losing the cultural diversity as well. What I see is I believe that the ayahuasca, whatever it's doing inside of us as human beings, however it's interacting with us, it helps us get in touch with our deepest natural inner wisdom, like the, the part of us that wants from a nature, from a nature perspective, wants us to thrive. And whatever that means for the individual, that ayahuasca is going to help you figure it out. And it's, you know, nature wants to thrive. And we're, we're an odd, we're odd, we're an odd species. We think too much. We get wrapped up in our little heads, you know? Yeah, no, I know that very well. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. And we're not alone, by the way. Other species, higher species, they get wrapped up in their heads, too. We just don't speak their language. Yeah. You know, like, I, you know, wolves can get messed up in their heads. You know, if they have a bad experience, they can get trauma right. and behave badly. We know that. Yeah. We've, we've seen that in our dogs. Yeah, exactly. Wolves are Mother Nature's dogs. So if you've seen a dog that's behaving badly because they've been beaten or whatever, or they had a frightening experience, they, they have post-traumatic stress syndrome just like us. Yeah. But we get wrapped up in our heads, and ayahuasca helps us figure that out and unravel those knots, you know, those psychic knots. And just and it's so that we can get back on our feet or get our, you know, spread our wings and fly. That's what it does. I don't know how. I don't know why. It just does. And for somebody like me who did not grow up a plant person, I mean, I loved the woods and the forest and the jungle, and I was in it all the time, but I took, kind of just took it as setting, you know? Yeah. It was just, it was there. I took it, not took it for granted. I loved it, but I didn't think about it like spirits. I was much more interested in critters, you know, animals, birds. But without the plants, none of it exists. That's the habitat. Yeah. All, we're all together. Yeah, yeah. And, and for me, I mean, reading about ayahuasca and, you know, finding out that 
DMT is in, in the plants uh, that comprise ayahuasca and that we have DMT naturally in our brains already. I mean, those kinds of... We do. <laughs> yeah, those kinds of things, to me, demonstrate that we're a lot more connected with everything around us than we've ever realized. And Well, well one of the things being married to Chris is I, got, I have access to, I've gotten to meet some of the awesome, awesome, awesome women in the herb scene. Again, mm-hmm. there's some really great guys, okay? But the herbal goddesses are astounding. Yeah. So I, even though I wasn't a plant person or an herbal person, I have gotten to meet some of the great minds out there today who have just really something. And listen to what they have to say about plants, and it turns out that women share more DNA with plants than men do. Really? I had never heard that. That's interesting. It's estrogen, apparently. Okay. Wow. Yeah. It's huh. kind of an odd thing. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that more. That's together. Cool. We have We share DNA with the plants. And, and, you know, I'm not an expert in that. I've learned this from my other experts like my husband. But I'm in the scene, so I learn these things. And I'm bringing to the table what I had, my areas of expertise, and putting them all together and saying, okay, how, what can we do with this information? How can we change the, the culture? How can we make a shift in our culture before it's too late? Is people ask me, well, why do I bring the, the, the women down to the Amazon? Why is that important? It's important, one, because it's illegal here to do ayahuasca, mm-hmm. and I take that seriously, especially as high-profile people. We're, we're in the media. We can't, we can't have the cops showing up and saying, you know, where's the ayahuasca? Right. That's, that's not okay with me. Yeah. So I don't mess around with things that are illegal, and I don't recommend other people do it. I know people are doing it. I have friends that do it. I don't want anything to do with it, and I will not recommend it to people. Yeah. And it's a shame because it's really a prohibition world, like you're saying, because mm-hmm. that means that some people who, you know, it's not just financial difficulty to get down to the Amazon, but sometimes it's timing. You know, maybe someone has kids, you know, or maybe they have a physical illness that keeps them from getting down to some crazy little river town in the Amazon. Yeah. You know, they're, you know it's, it's a shame to keep them from being able to get to the medicine that can help them. Right. That's terrible. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying that it's okay that it's illegal, but right now... It's illegal. So that aside, there are other reasons to go to the Amazon to experience ayahuasca, at least for the first time. It's to me, I, you know, I, I bring up the first time making love because I was one of those girls who are like, I'm going to love the guy. This is a special moment for me. I'm mm-hmm. going to be in love, and we're going to make love the first time, and it's going to mean something, yeah. you know? So for me, it's kind of like that. It's like, hey, go to where the plant originates from. Put yourself in the jungle with shamans who've been doing this for centuries, who know this plant, who know this, you know, the way it works on people in ways that we don't understand yet. We're just learning. Right. They know it differently than we know it. And, and they've seen it, the human condition part, the part that has nothing to do with whether you're from South America or, you know, from Russia or New Zealand or from the United States or wherever, because people come from all over the world for this. Yeah. You, know, we, you, you will be in ceremony with people from everywhere in the world. But they're all humans, and that is a commonality, and the shamans know that. And the plant works on every human, and you're in the jungle where it comes from, and that jungle, that primary rainforest, that Amazon rainforest that we depend on to live on this planet is still being aggressively wiped off the planet. Yeah. So... 
that's part of why I bring women down. I want them to witness the fact that the Amazon is being still being systematically destroyed faster than it ever has been before. Yeah, and we don't hear about that as much. You, you, we heard about it a lot maybe 10, 15 years ago um, or later than, earlier than that. Uh, it, it was kind of a hot news story, just like Save the Whales was in the mid-'80s. And then you know yep. it, it falls out of the news cycle, and you don't hear much about it anymore, but it's obviously it, still yeah, happening. Yeah, it's like, didn't Sting fix that? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and Sting and Trudy Styler, his wife, who's awesome, um, they ha- they started the Rainforest Foundation some twenty odd years ago after drinking ayahuasca. Huh. By the way, interesting. Um, they have saved many, many, many acres, and it's still being wiped out. And every couple of years, they have the Sting and Friends concert in New York, which has become kind of like the place to go. Um, and they raise millions of dollars to help the Amazon, and they say the same thing every year. Thank you so much for your money. Unfortunately, we have to tell you that. While we are saving a few acres here and there, it is still being wiped out more aggressively than ever. I'm always like, look, you know what, ladies, look around. (laughs) Yes, there are river dolphins, and they are amazing. Look (laughs) beyond the river dolphins to the sides of the shores of the river. What do you see? Piles of old-growth timber, huge trees. Hmm. And you'll see it at Home Depot and Lowe's, but you won't know what it is because it'll be in two-by-fours. Right, yeah. Unmarked two-by-fours. Hmm. <laughs> you know, we, we have to change it or we just simply will, we're committing suicide, you or, know? Yeah, uh, right. And, and, you know, as far as individuals are concerned, as far as you and I are concerned, you, you focus on changing what you can um, because obviously it's, it's such a huge issue. You, you can't fix it yourself, but you can do yeah. your part in, in finding your path and fixing it is just, you know, the tagline of our magazine is Cure Ignorance. And really, yeah, I love that. Love that. Yeah, the, the, the crux of that is essentially not making decisions for people, but presenting them with information so they can make decisions about things and be aware of what's going on um, that, you know, I don't think they're really hearing much about. And, um, yeah, you know, it's just about... I, I get discouraged. I used to get discouraged until I realized that I'm doing what I can right now and... and um, uh, there's a satisfaction in knowing that that uh, I'm playing a role, even though it's probably not going to fix everything. You know, it's it may, maybe it changes a couple people's minds, and you know that's great. I think you're in a very influential role in doing great work, and you're one of the lucky ones. And I think that a lot of the depression in the world right now, especially in our country and other colonialist countries, by the way, like France, you know, they're having the same kind of depression problems. It's because we know. We, we know there's a problem, and we don't feel, we feel helpless in, in fixing it. Yeah. So, it, you know, if you can have some kind of job or part of your work, at least, where you're actively or proactively even trying to help, then that makes a difference. So that was my conversation with Zoe Helena of Cosmic Sister. If you're interested in more information about Zoe, Cosmic Sister, or the Cosmic Sister Plant Spirit Grant, visit www.cosmicsister.com. And that'll wrap up this podcast. I'm Christian Williams, editor of Utney Reader, and I'll talk to you next time.